there. Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is the great German soccer expert, Raphael Honigstein of The Athletic and CBS Sports. We've had some great guests lately, including Henry Winter, Soccer Girl Problems, and Ted Lasso's Jason Sudeikis and Brendan Hunt. I also encourage you to listen to my new podcast series, American Prodigy, The Freddie Adu Story. All eight episodes are now out, and you can binge all of them to your heart's content. For now, though, here's my interview with Raphael Honigstein. Our guest now is an old friend of mine, going all the way back to 2004, London-based Raphael Honigstein is the world's leading journalist on German soccer in the English language. He might just be in the German language as well, I just don't consume German. Uh, he writes for The Athletic and Der Spiegel. You can hear him on the podcasts Stylecast and The Totally Football Show. And you can see him on television for BT Sport in the UK and on CBS Sports here in the US on its UEFA coverage. He's also the author of the terrific books Das Reboot on the revival of German soccer and Bring the Noise, a biography of Jurgen Klopp. Rafi, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Grant. When I knew that you had such a nice intro prepared for me, I immediately said yes. <laughs> I'm a good hype man. I think I've got a future in this. Um, Thank you. Great to have you with me. I, I want to talk about German football, obviously, in our conversation here. I also want to talk about you and your career, but let's start with the football. Uh, fans here in the U.S. saw something pretty remarkable over the weekend. A 19-year-old Californian named Matthew Hoppy scored his first three first-team goals in one game for Schalke, which ended its 30-game Bundesliga winless streak, one game shy of the record held by Tasmania Berlin. And a bunch of Americans said, who is Matthew Hoppy? Um, what happened here? <laughs> it wasn't just Americans who were astonished by what was <laughs> happening because Schalke winning was just not something that many people, I think, anticipated or, or expected at this position, at this point. Um, of course, they did so in style and they did so largely thanks to this fantastic hat-trick that uh, Mafia Hoppy scored. Um, what happened? Uh, I mean, it's it's not easy to explain because he hadn't exactly been setting the world alight at under-19 level for, for Schalke since moving over from the US. Um you know, people in Germany say, oh, he's come from the Barca Academy. Yes, but not the Barca Academy, one of the Barca Academies. <laughs> in Arizona. <laughs> in, yeah. But still, I mean, Schalke believed that there is there is a real talent there. Otherwise, they wouldn't have brought him over. And I guess they came to the point where playing a youngster who didn't perhaps feel the weight of, of history as much as some of the other Schalke players who just saw this as an opportunity to just turn up and score a goal or, 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 you know, do something special was maybe an inspired choice on behalf of Christian Gross, the coach. And it certainly worked out the way the goals were, were, were amazing. And they put Shark on a path to victory. And of course, the only question is now, you know, was this just one of those weird one-offs that, that tend to happen for some players? Or is this now the beginning of a real sustained uh, career Bundesliga level. I think we'll have to wait and see and find out. I will say this. I haven't put a Schalke game on my games to watch calendar for a while, but I am starting to do that again, which <laughs> uh, you never know what might happen out there. This past weekend was 
besides Matthew Hoppe, a particularly fascinating one in Germany. Bayern Munich lost at Gladbach. Leipzig would have gone top in the league with a win over Dortmund, but Dortmund had a huge away win in that game to get back in the race. Leverkusen keeps hanging around in third place. Bayern has dominated this league over the past decade. Do you think we'll continue to see teams bunched up at the top of the table as the season progresses? And why or why not? Well, I think what we're seeing with Bayern this year is is akin to the stories we're seeing in Italy and in England where the, the dominant team is not quite as dominant as they used to be for a number of reasons. Um, they've come down to a much more ordinary level. They're still the best team, but not out of sight, not to the extent that they're untouchable. Um, it's injuries, it's the amount of games, it's a lack of freshness. It's also, I think, the inability to spend big in the summer. That's made a big difference. You know, if you're the biggest team, you can always spend big. Yes, Bayern you know, brought in Leroy Sané, but that was really it. Then the other players are are fringe players that they brought in to supplement the squad. They don't necessarily strengthen the first team. And now that they're in need of a bit of inspiration and of sharpness from the bench, it's not quite there. So there's a lot of factors kind of coming together and compounding each other to have seen Bayern drop off. And the only problem so far has been, I think, that that Leipzig, in a way, are just as affected, maybe not quite as much, but they've had a long season as well. They went to the semi-final of the Champions League. They haven't been able to really spend that much money either. Um, so we're all looking towards Dortmund, really, to see where that challenge comes from. And Dortmund, with beating Leipzig, I think, are back in a sort of in, in contention in a zone where we expect them to be from the outset. And hopefully, I think for the rest of the league and for themselves, of course, they'll be able to sustain it because there is no doubt that they are the second best team and should give Bayern a run for their money. Uh, they haven't been able to do so uh, so far this season. And but let's not forget, they, they came relatively close to two seasons before. So I wouldn't write them off too early. So we see Edin Terzic in this sort of interim role for Dortmund and it seems like the ability to establish some consistency with results is really top top of mind for him uh, right now because they didn't have that under Favre. Um, how do you do that if you're him? I think you do it in the, uh, by playing the kind of game that the team wants to play and is happiest with. I think you saw towards the end of the Lucien Favre reign, but even perhaps before, that there was a bit of a disconnect between him and the team. First of all, on an emotional level, but also on a tactical level. I think a lot of the players wanted to play a more aggressive game, wanted to be much more attack-minded, pushing high up the pitch rather than waiting for things to fall apart for the opposition and then starting long counter-attacks from their own half. And in that respect, there are similarities between Tessic and Hansi Flick because Flick was also an assistant under Niko Kovac. And you were thinking, you know, as an assistant, why didn't he play already the stuff that he played now? Why didn't Terzic change? But I think the problem for both of them was that they had coaches with different views. And at the same time, I think they have a pretty good idea of how the dressing room works and finding ways of playing that is much more geared to both the, the characters in the team but also tactically to what the team should look like. And 
I think the only question with Tessic is just how far he can take it because I don't think Dortmund see him necessarily as another Hansi Flick. Um, I mean, Bayern didn't see Hansi Flick as Hansi Flick. They saw him as a guy that would keep the bench warm for the big name that was going to come in in the summer. Um, if Tessic does really, really well, it's going to be a little bit more difficult for Dortmund to sell the idea that they're going to go for some, some other guy. But I think um, Marco Rosa, who I think is the earmarked successor because of his energy, his charisma, his personality will be such a perfect fit for Dortmund that even Tessic having an amazing season, it's not going to change much. If he happens to win the league, then maybe <laughs> it'll be, it'll be difficult, but I guess that's a nice problem to have for Dortmund at that point. You know, you had an interesting discussion on uh, your Stylecast podcast this week just is this Bayern Munich team right now still the best team in Europe? And it's a little bit of a weird moment, right? Because some of the top domestic leagues in Europe are being led by teams that aren't even in Champions League. So you're like Man, Man United's out. Uh, they're leading the Premier League. Uh, Milan is in Europa League. Um, it's, it's a little bit of a weird season. You know, Liverpool is not playing that great lately. Um, is Bayern Munich still the best team in Europe? I don't know is the answer. And I, I think we'll only see in February. It could be that the best team in Europe doesn't have to be that consistent domestically to still win. Um, you know, Real Madrid, when they dominated the Champions League, weren't the best team in Spain, but it didn't ultimately matter because they could pull themselves together. Bayern themselves have a history going back to the 70s when they were very average domestically. But for those big European cup nights they they turned it on and I think that's still eminently possible I mean you know the potential from Bayern is there but right now they're just in a in a very bad rut and without Flick changing the system and without enough depth in terms of players that he can rely on it's difficult to see Bayern carry themselves through the next few months at a high level that they're playing and now they have to improve they it's no longer enough to maintain what they're doing. Because if you look at the underlying number in, in, in a piece I wrote uh, with my colleague Mark Carey for The Athletic, they're actually really, really bad. I mean, their numbers mm. have collapsed to historically bad levels over the last three years. So they need to do a lot to get up there. And I'm not sure they, they have it in them. But as you alluded to, everyone has problems. So even a buying team that are nowhere near the best, their best, as they were back in August, might still be strong enough to win the Champions League a second time. Interesting, because one other team I might throw out there on form is Atletico Madrid, and we saw Bayern do quite well against Atletico Madrid. Yeah, they did, uh, yeah. In Champions League. Uh, in terms of Leipzig, I watch a lot of their games, in part because I, I like the way they play, I like the project. They also have an American, Tyler Adams, who I think has a really good future. But every time I think Leipzig is going to take the next step, it seems like they kind of don't do it. Like, obviously, they did get to the semifinal in Champions League, so that was something. But this past weekend was kind of disappointing, if you're a Leipzig fan, to lose that game at home against Dortmund when you could have gone top of the league. What do you think it would mean for them to take the next step? Does that mean winning the league? or And, and can they do it? Well, first of all, I think it's real testament to both them as a club and Julian Nagelsmann that we expect him, them now to win something. And that is now the next step. 
So they've come as far as they can without winning necessarily. Can they win? I think it's difficult because whichever way you want to slice it, they are still only the third best team in this in this league. So it's not impossible that they take advantage of weakness from Bayern and Dortmund. Uh, there is no doubt that Nagelsmann has pushed them further than anyone else. Is is almost, I think, extracting the maximum. But I think you only have to compare the three players that started up front for them to the ones that started for Dortmund and see that this is not quite the same level. You know, they would love to have an Erling Haaland up front. They would love to have a Jaden Sancho. Even a Gio Reyna, I think, would walk into this team at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not even talking about the likes of Mats Hummels at the back. So I think it's very, very difficult for Leipzig without sustained financial investment and getting it right all the time when it comes to unearthing new diamonds and new talents to see them making that leap and staying there rather than just having an occasional good run. I think, you know, they have a chance of winning the German Cup. I think they have a chance of getting far into the Champions League again. That is probably what we should be considering as winning for them at the moment. I don't think anything else is really realistic, unfortunately. And and that's the big question, as you said, that we discussed in Starcast, basically, where is the ceiling for the side and where's the ceiling for somebody like Julian Nagelsmann, who's so ambitious and who wants to win, will he ultimately feel that, you know what, even if I'm coaching at 100% being the best coach possible, it doesn't change the equation that I have two teams ahead of me that are always going to be better. There are obviously a lot of Americans in Germany right now. Gio Reyna, Tyler Adams, Chris Richards, Josh Sargent, John Brooks, Matthew Hoppe. There's others too. But one of the most intriguing ones to me is the Stuttgart head coach, Pellegrino Matarazzo. And Stuttgart is currently in 10th place after promotion. How do you think Matarazzo has done in his first Bundesliga season? I think he's been doing incredibly well. Um, Stuttgart have a recognizable playing style. They get great results. They're playing mid-table football with a team that is still second division through and through in terms of the money that they spend, in terms of the names that you see there. Very little Bundesliga experience. But the recruitment and the tactics are really aligned to an extent that Stuttgart have been an instant success since coming back. And I think a lot of credit has to go him, but also the people around him because they really feel, it really feels as if this was very much a concerted effort from uh, Thomas Hitzensperger, the sporting director, Sven Mislintat, who used to be at uh, Dortmund and Arsenal. Now they're the uh, technical director in charge of recruitment. So yeah, I think he's working in a great team and he's done He's done incredibly well. The The only problem that they have is that their amazing results have been a little bit overshadowed by the stuff that's going on, um, not so much behind the scenes, but <laughs> off the pitch where, you know, you have a presidential election fight going on and um, lots of intrigue. But if we take that away for a moment, you just look at the team. I think he has a very good case, Matarazzo, for being considered the best American coach working at the moment uh, with the effect that he's had. The other coach that might be in that discussion probably is Jesse Marsh. Uh, you know, he's at Salzburg in Austria, so the domestic league is obviously a different situation, but 
has had some success in Champions League even without advancing two years now. They, they've taken it to the last game of the group stage both times. Um, at one point, Bill had reported that Marsh was one of the candidates for the Dortmund job. You're saying that Marco Rosa is the, the most likely candidate to get that job at this point. Where do you think Marsh falls in the group of candidates to get the Dortmund job potentially? or potentially another job in the Bundesliga at some point? I think he will, he will definitely, almost inevitably, wind up in the Bundesliga. I think it's a it's a well-trodden path. Adi Hütter did it from Salzburg, then Marco Rosa, and I think Marsh is the next one. But all three of them also didn't make the jump up immediately from going to Salzburg right to a top four super club. And I think it's probably for a coach, just as it would be for a player, unless your name is Erling Haaland, maybe a more gradual advance does make a lot of sense because the bigger the club, the the, the bigger the issues you're dealing with that go beyond the actual coaching. And I think it's very, very difficult to sustain your own you know, brilliance, even if you're an amazing coach, if you haven't had the experience to work with big egos, to work with big egos upstairs, you know, um, presidents, uh, technical directors, etc. And I, I think if you can do it slightly more gradual, it's it's really good. So I think for for Jesse Marsh, getting into the the German Bundesliga would be would be progress, would be a, a career um, advancement, and I think it's it's almost inevitable that it will happen. Let's take a quick break from our interview with Raphael Honigstein, and I'll ask you a question. Do you ever want to watch Spain's La Liga or the Copa Libertadores and get frustrated because they're not available on your cable system? You should try a streaming service I use that I love. It's called Fanatis with a Z, and you can watch all the action from La Liga, Copa Libertadores, and other international leagues and tournaments live and on demand from your favorite device whether it's a mobile phone, tablet, or directly on your TV with the Fanatis app. You can also watch the top leagues from France, Brazil, and Argentina. Fanatis features channels you know, like Be In Sports and English and Spanish, Gold TV, and many more. And it costs as little as $7.99 a month. If you'd like to try Fanatis for yourself, you can get a free week-long trial by clicking on the link in the episode description or by going to fntz.co slash grant hyphen fz. One more time, that's fntz.co slash grant hyphen fz. Thank you very much to Fanatis for sponsoring this episode. Fanatis, the world's largest stadium. There's obviously a lot of excitement here in the United States about all the Americans in the Bundesliga these days, but I have to ask, are Americans kind of annoying about all this? I mean, how do people over there feel about Americans on Twitter getting so fired up about Americans simply starting a game or scoring a goal in the Bundesliga? <laughs> no, I think, look, Bundesliga clubs by and large, and I would include their fans in that, are happy when when outsiders, when others take an interest, and especially when they take such a keen interest and and feel some kind of emotional connection uh, to the clubs and the players involved. I don't think you'll find anyone saying, oh, these stupid Americans, they annoy us again with, you know, with the interview requests or the amount of retweets you get on Twitter. I mean, people, people kind of like that stuff. 
Um, so no, I think the more, the more the merrier, it it can at times feel, I think a little bit gimmicky from the point where you see that the Bundesliga are trying to utilize the market and, and, and produce almost content for them. And I wouldn't, um, you know, include the signing of Americans in that, but the way that the Americans there are being kind of, um, put on a pedestal to to drive a bit of traffic. Sometimes it can feel a bit artificial, but by and large, I think it's it's a win win situation. You know, the the Americans um, are playing at a very very decent level there, and for the Bundesliga, it exposes uh, them a little bit more and creates a little bit more hype and a little bit more excitement in what is a very important market. So, I don't I don't think there's any any real downside to this. No, I don't think people. <laughs> will uh you know will will ban americans from <laughs> from getting excited or taking too much of an interest i just wanted to check with someone from from the outside situation from the us um i want to move to the premier league for a moment you wrote a terrific book obviously on jurgen klopp you have followed liverpool closely What's your sense of how Klopp is experiencing this season of leading Liverpool, which suddenly finds itself dropping some points and looking up at Manchester United in the table ahead of the showdown this weekend? My sense is that he anticipated a lot of the issues that Liverpool are facing. I think he would have liked to have had better results. I think they played well enough throughout the season to be in a better position in the table. You look at the uh, games that they have lost. You look at the games they have drawn. And most of them, you probably feel they should have done better. They did enough by way of creating chances or by way of not conceding too many chances to get to get better results. So I think, you know, if you combine all these issues that they're facing, that everyone else is facing, but at their own Liverpool-specific issues like losing Van Dijk, and uh, you know, losing Diego Jota, and perhaps a little bit like Bayern being more affected tactically because of their high energy, high pressing style, which suffers perhaps a little bit more from that lack of energy that seems to be a, a problem for a lot of teams. Then I would think deep down, he's probably fairly pleased that he's still in a position where if they go on a bit of a run and maybe rediscover their form in the second half of the season, they're still in a strong position to defend the title. I think he would have been worried if, you know, halfway through the, the season, Liverpool would be six, seven points off. And then it'd have to almost have the perfect second half of the season to to turn it around. But they're still, by and large, ha- control their own destiny. Um, a lot will ride, I think, on the game on on Sunday. If they lose, I think it'll create a bit of negative momentum. Because then you really have to go into every game thinking we cannot drop any points anymore. We cannot drop any points anymore. But I wouldn't expect them to lose. And I think they'll still be the favorites to win uh, the league once more. Alongside with, with Manchester City, who look very, very strong now. Who've kind of gone through their own crisis, if you will, and come out the other side. And now have become Manchester City, that kind of ominous team stringing, stringing together passes and wins once more. You're- you're in London. So is the German duo of Kai Havertz and Timo Werner at Chelsea. There are some concerns, I guess, right now about their adjustment to the Premier League. Is there any reason for real concern there, though? If you spend so much money on these players and they don't score as many goals and they don't play as well and as often as you expect and in terms of um, as far as Kai Havertz is concerned, of course, 
you are concerned as a club, you're concerned as a fan, you're concerned if you're Frank Lampard and you know that your job ultimately is it, it is to bring out the best of these two guys. Otherwise, it's only a question of time before the club will wonder whether somebody else might get more out of them. So yes, it's it's a big story. It's a big issue. The way I see it, it's less to do with adjusting to the Premier League as such. I know that Timo Werner has talked about you know things being a little bit different and uh, the frenetic nature of games and the amount of physical contact is, is different to Germany. But I don't think that's the main issue. I think the main issue is that they're playing in a team that doesn't seem to have really found itself just yet. Um, very difficult to understand what it is that Chelsea are trying to do beyond winning. Um, <laughs> and I think if you're new to a league, if you're new to a team, maybe you can suffer a little bit more from that uh, lack of direction, from that lack of organization that Chelsea, to me, represent and stand for uh, than somebody who's already, you know, done it three or four years in a row and kind of understands how to play their game no matter what. I think these guys would thrive with a bit more direction, with a bit more structure, and it's not forthcoming. Um, I think, hypothetically speaking, you put, you put Timo Werner now into that Liverpool team in the Diego Jota role, I think he would do very well because it's a very clear defined of playing. Um, he wouldn't be moved around in many different positions. He'd be one guy, mostly playing probably on the on the left. And I think he'd do a lot better there, but not because it's a different team necessarily, but because I think Liverpool as a team are more advanced and more defined, whereas Chelsea is still a work in progress. And I think it's easy to get lost, you know, when you're just another piece of the puzzle that hasn't quite found its position on the board because the guy putting it all together hasn't really worked out yet what the final picture is supposed to look like. At least that's how it feels. Not exactly a ringing endorsement of Frank Lampard there, my man. I thought he did, did tremendously well last season with his young team to finish top four. But what you then want is progress. And what you want is putting a team together that that understand what it is they're trying to do. And I think it's, it's proving hard to him. I think he is a player who, through the force of his own personality and those around him and really strong leadership uh, on the managerial side, at least some of the managers he's had, perhaps doesn't need as much input as some of the players he's working with now do who are from a different generation, um, you know, who for whatever reason perhaps need a bit more when it comes to technical advice rather than just man management. And I think he's, I don't want to say he's been, he's struggling with it, but I think it's, it's a learning curve for him and he needs to show that he can do it. I do want to ask you one question about the German national team. The Euro is this summer. Um, hopefully. Where do you th- <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hopefully. Um, with the semis and the final where you are at, uh, at Wembley. Um, where do you think the German national team is right now under Yogi Lowe? Are you surprised he's still the coach? I don't think Germany know themselves where they are at the moment. That's one of the big problems. Um, the idea, I think, after the World Cup was to build a new Germany. And we've seen that in terms of personnel. 
but then what Loeff did was also experiment a lot. Um, some of it was necessary because he had to juggle different interests. You know, um, this summer, for example, the Champions League sides were left out when it came to the games in September. So, you know, for Germany, that means half the team is out when you put Bayern and Leipzig together. Then you play with, with players who are perhaps not quite the same level. Then people are very unforgiving if the performances are not quite the same level. Um, I wouldn't hold that against them, but he's also, I think, strayed a little bit too far experimenting tactically, looking for plan Bs when plan A is in itself not quite fully formed and hasn't been implemented properly. So, you know, you do all this experimentation um, and I think the net result is that people no longer understand what this Germany team are trying to do. Now, history experience would suggest that working with a full team for four weeks, five weeks in the run-up to a tournament will turn out a very different Germany, a much more coherent Germany, who, a Germany that will be among the favorites. But the concern is that he perhaps no longer has that emotional bond that he enjoyed with the 2014 team. And now it's a lot of players, some of the younger players who are thinking, yeah, I mean, Löw is a World Cup winner, but what does he do for me? Do I really feel inspired by him? What is he trying to tell me? I think there's a danger that he's kind of lacking the real connection, the real um, spark in the dressing room with these guys. And Germany's group is pretty difficult. Um, the games are also in the wrong way, in the wrong order, if you will, starting with the trickiest against France, then Portugal, and then Hungary, on paper, the one side that Germany definitely have to beat. So it, it could be a very short Euros if things go bad. And, and then it would be the second tournament that Germany, um, I need to watch my language here, and mess up. <laughs> And that would lead then to a much bigger fallout mm. um, with not Löw, but maybe also Oliver Bierhoff being on the line. And it would be a pretty, pretty big disaster. So it's, there's a lot at stake. And I think the pressure will be really intense going into this tournament. Interesting, though, that they have Portugal in their group, which finished third in their group four years ago and five years ago and still won the tournament. So sort of a forgiving situation with the format. Uh, we'll see how that ends up shaking out this summer. I want to talk about you a little bit here at the end. Um, you and I met, I don't know if you remember this, at a dinner in Lisbon at Euro 2004, uh, organized by Gabriel Marcotti and Guillaume Balaguer was there, first time I ever met Guillaume. And our group has been having dinners together at major tournaments ever since, which is always a highlight for me at World Cups and Euros. Um, I want to go back, though, and, and ask you, when, when you first moved to England from Germany, how old were you? Why did you do it? I was 19. Uh, I moved to London to study law. I didn't really think about football uh, in a professional sense at all, but then I slipped into journalism, first writing about... Um, about music and a bit of fashion, pop culture, really. And then my uh, colleague and friend, Ronald Reng, who wrote the book on um, Robert Enke and many other amazing books, he moved to Barcelona, so I inherited his position. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was at the turn of the century, so more or less 20 years ago. And they still haven't found anyone better. 
So that's why I'm still, still here doing the same job. There, there was a funny moment with you and Kate Abdo on a CBS Champions League broadcast where it came up that you had written about fashion. I think she was going after your no sock look. And, yeah. and she called me a fashion blogger, which was funny because there were certainly no <laughs> blogs at the time. Um, this was all pre blogging. Um, what, what did you write about in fashion? I'm curious. Um, so I would go to to fashion shows and just and write. I mean, London was at the end of the 90s was was the place to be. So I went to see uh, Alexander McQueen, Hussein Shalyan. I mean, all these amazing designers and and then wrote about it. So that was it. I mean, I was a bit annoyed because she made it sound as if I was just kind of this obscure guy in, in, <laughs> sitting in a basement, you know, writing about the trainers he's wearing that day or whatever. It was, uh, it was, no, it was a lot of fun, but football, football to me is more fun. And I was very, very happy that I had the opportunity to, to make that jump over because, um, it's just a lot more fulfilling, I think. Um, I got. I don't want to get too serious on this uh, on this show, but after nine eleven, there was a moment where I just, I guess, everyone felt the same. But with me, it was very very pronounced. I got the sense, you know, who's concerned or who cares about music and fashion at this moment in time. So it, it felt very kind of small. Um, I guess sports is no different, but it kind of coincided with me making that move a few months later. And I don't know, football feels, feels bigger somehow, even though I still, still like music and fashion. I, I am still waiting for your deconstruction of Julian Nagelsmann's sideline attire, which I, I haven't seen that from you yet. Are we ever going to get that? Look, you don't want to be cruel. Um, <laughs> you'd rather not say anything bad and just keep your counsel. Uh, <laughs> some of his stuff's I, pretty good. I like some of his stuff. Yeah, um, not all though. I mean, he's he's trying, he's trying, <laughs> but I think he's realized that he, belatedly perhaps, that he sets himself up as a target, and rightly or wrongly, I mean, I guess it shows you the power of fashion and 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 what a message you send with your clothes because people involuntarily associate, you know, um, extra extravagant dressing with someone who is confident and someone who wants to sort of be in the, in the, in the foreground and, and make a big point. And I think he likes all these things. It's just when the team doesn't quite shine as much as his suits, <laughs> things get very, very difficult. If, if the team's out of shape and the suit is sharper than, <laughs> than the formation, things get difficult. Ooh, fair enough. Um, it's really been exciting for me to see you on U.S. television with CBS on UEFA broadcasts. I know you've done TV before over in Europe. Um, what has that experience been like for you? And is U.S. television different to do than European TV? Uh, the experience has been great. I mean, it's been a real, real joy. First of all, working with a team because they're all incredibly nice people and, and the, the camaraderie and the, the good natured fun that you see, none of it is scripted or staged. It's, it's not something you can really pretend to, to have. I mean, I've known Kate now for almost 20 years. Um, I don't think she would, you know, talk about other people's um, socks or lack thereof uh, <laughs> with the same kind of confidence and charm. 
um, if she didn't know me as much and as well and, and knew how I would take it. So it's just what, that's just one small example. Now it's been, it's been really, really fun. Um, and I guess the difference, every show is different. Um, there's a particular concept with the show and my role is different. For example, when it comes to Europa League, when I'm more of an analyst in the Champions League, they've used me as a reporter. They've used me as the guy who maybe adds some of the context of a game, you know, when, uh, the panel look more at tactical stuff and look more at the game stuff. I can come in and, and explain why it is that Leipzig, for example, are disliked in Germany. So just provide a bit of a uh, bit of color, a bit of background. But it's it's just been been really fun, and I guess the biggest difference is that the tone um, and the sound, the tonality, and that's probably the best word of the show, is very much. Yeah, football is is important. These are big games, but it is football. Let's not just let's not go crazy. Let's not pretend this is sort of super important, earth shattering stuff. It is to the fans, but I guess for a U.S. audience, they can perhaps look at these teams and don't quite have the same emotional connection like a Spaniard would have. You know, talking about Real Madrid or a German about Bayern Munich. So it that degree of of distance maybe helps you, I think, to be a little bit more detached and a little bit more having fun with it without the fear of treading on people's toes or kind of getting uh, or underestimating just how big the game is. I think we we found a nice kind of middle ground between treating football very seriously and not belittling it, but at the same time realizing that it is still not the most important thing in the world. And I think that has actually been one of the fun things to do for the show. I'm enjoying it. I really am. Um, how do you juggle all the different work things you're doing? Uh, needs must. I mean, <laughs> what can you do? Look, uh, we're lucky in 2020, 2021 to, to be juggling work. Um, I think that's one of the, the big stories of the season of the year has been that football, fortunately, after a short break has come back and our professional lives hadn't been as impacted as most of the people working in the real world. So, you know, when you're busy, when you're a freelancer, it's, it's customary to complain about, you know, having a lot of work, but actually really this season more than ever, you have to say, yeah, thank God um, I am busy and you won't, you won't hear me moaning about it. So now we've been, we've been incredibly lucky that things haven't changed all that much. Um, and it's been a real privilege, I think, to work to work at a time when many people have, have real issues with their livelihoods. What are you most excited about in the year ahead? I think it's easy. That one's easy to answer. I'm most excited about normal life coming back. Um, and I think 2020, we'll see it. How soon? I'm not sure. I thought maybe February, six months ago. Now already February is, is gone. I'm, I'm clinging to the hope that maybe Easter might be a turning point. Maybe that's too early. I'm thinking maybe the Euros will be the first time we'll see people back in the stadiums, but even that might be a little bit too early. What I do think, and I do remain optimistic about, is that 2021 as a calendar year, we'll see um, normal life to some extent resuming. And by that, I would include going to a stadium with fans, experiencing football the way it should be. And when it happens, 
I think it will it will create a kind of energy and an enjoyment and excitement that we haven't seen in a long, long time. Because what would have been mundane and trivial, you know, going to a game on a wet Wednesday night against West Brom will feel like the biggest thing happening in the last 14 months. And it, and it will be. So I can't wait for it to happen. I hope and, and, and I'm reasonably confident it will happen. So I think we're looking forward to, to that enjoyment. We just don't know exactly yet when it's coming. And it's, that's going to create, I think, a bit more anxiety and, and a few more difficult months. But we'll get there. Well, whether it's the Euro or at some other point, can't wait to see you in person again, covering a game, catching up, and uh, just really appreciate you taking time to, to come on this show. Raphael Honigstein writes for The Athletic and Der Spiegel. You can hear him on the podcast, Stylecast, and The Totally Football Show. You can see him on BT Sport in the UK and CBS Sports here in the US. My friend, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Grant. Really nice speaking to you. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Raphael Honigstein as well as producer Chris Whittingham. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.